All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, my guest today, two people that I, I've met recently. How long did we meet? Like maybe a month ago? Mm, Does that sound yeah. about right? And uh, the first thing I asked them after I started talking for a few minutes was like, can you please come on my podcast? And they <laughs> both very great, uh, graciously said yes. Um, Aiden Cohn Murphy. Aiden is the founder of Gen Z for Change, which is a nonprofit advocacy group that uses social media to promote civil discourse and political action. And Avalon Zavrovsky Fenster, she is studying the intersection of technology, law, and ethics at Barnard. But uh, I think for purposes of this, she's a member of the board directors of the Sustainable Media Center and leads their next-gen board. Um, she's a maker and consumer of digital media with a monthly average of about 2 million people. So pretty significant. So guys, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. So, so, so we met originally kind of around some of the political interests I think we share and things like better regulation of social media and making it easier for people to, to vote. Um, and I want to get into all of that. But I, I think that a lot of our audience is not Gen Z. I think the thing that may be the most helpful um, is kind of just to give them a sense of how you see the world. So like each of you, like, what do you want out of life? Like, you know, what does the world look like to you? What are you scared of? What are you excited about? You know, what what makes you tick? You know, give us that. Because I think if we have a good baseline of how you see the world, we kind of have a really good conversation from there. So, um, Avalon, you want to go first? Sure. Well, I think that's a fantastic question. So I think Gen Z is really the generation of fairly unadulterated access. We're digital natives. We have a lot of information at our fingertips. And I think that that also makes us the generation of plans. So just speaking for myself, I think because I had so much access to information and because I had such an open world, I was able to make a lot of plans and have a lot of dreams that are driven with a purpose. And that purpose has been to make an impact, I would say, for the most part. And I think that's partially generational because we're also the generation of a lot of these kind of modern social movements living in this time of political upheaval as many generations have been before. Um, but I think that's also very deeply influenced by my identity as a first generation American, as a daughter of immigrants, as the granddaughter of refugees and Holocaust survivors. And so I knew that my time was going to be spent with a purpose. I think my biggest fear, and I think this is maybe particular to Gen Z, is that those plans that I've made, because of the access of, to information that I've had, aren't plans that I can follow through on, whether that's because of climate change, whether that's because of the way that social media is transforming our global landscape, whether that's because of political divisions rising into violence. I think that a lot of people revere Gen Z as the generation of kind of inspiration and being really gutsy and having a lot of these very futuristic ideals. But ultimately, at the same time, I think we're we're very aspirational, but we also have a lot of fear. And I, you know, can maybe only speak for myself and kind of the people that I'm around, but I think that fear also manifests itself into a lot of feelings of anxiety and isolation. Um, and I think that there's been kind of sufficient evidence that Gen Z definitely struggles with their mental health. And I think it's important not to discount the impact of sort of our social and political landscape on that fact. So I wouldn't say that I'm a pessimistic or cynical person. I would say that I have 
a realist. I'm a realist, but I also have a very purpose-driven view of the world. So I think it's it's hard to live in complicated times and also want to have the same things that everyone wants to have. Try to imagine a world where you grew up and there was no internet, right? So like my time, right? Um, Do you feel like your sort of desire to have an impact and your kind of window onto it would be much more limited or do you think you would just be doing the same thing with more rudimentary information? It's hard to say, but I think the thing that I know for sure is that now I have a lot more opportunity to take advantage of that impulse. I think having access to social media to connect with like-minded people and to have access to the internet where I can basically learn anything in 10 minutes allows me to have a lot more agency in in my purpose and in what I feel I want to do. Whereas I'm sure if I was born before the internet and I had no access, it might've made it a little harder for me to get started. And I think also it might've made my circumstances, I think for anyone in our generation, your circumstances can sometimes be bypassed because of the access you have to information. Yeah. I mean, look, one thing, and I don't want to get to in a second, but the, um, where you guys are right now, where you're both like, individual principles and players sort of in the world of impact and change probably doesn't happen kind of pre-internet, right? Like when I was, you know, in high school, I worked, I worked for a congressman, right? Like I wanted to be involved in mm-hmm. stuff. So like I just went and worked in government because that was what you could do. And the range of options available to you guys sort of is kind of transformative. So Aiden, what are you most excited about for the world and what keeps you up there? I think, well, I, th- I think they both come from and result in the same phenomenon. I, I think that what Avalon talked about, about our generation has um, unprecedented access and opportunity, but that, but that same force also comes with a, a duty and a responsibility. Yeah. I think that, that because we've, we've, we've grown up with technology and grown up on, on, on the internet, we are we are meeting we are meeting people and seeing things that 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 previous generations would never would never have but what that also means is that we as a generation are are seeing firsthand the, the evils of our world and the injustices that are happening whereas in the past if if say like not your generation but but prior if Walter Cronkite didn't cover something then most people didn't exist. weren't going to hear about it. Whereas we are seeing everything that is happening all the time and it is terrifying and it is exciting and it is terrifying. <laughs> so do you guys feel like you developed internal kind of, maybe even just implicitly without even sort of consciously thinking about it, filters? Because there's so much information coming at all of us all the time. The thing that I have at the age of 49 that you guys don't have is just enough life experience to be able to, to discount things more easily and say, okay, that's real. Okay, that's bullshit. Um, I couldn't have done that when I was 22 or 24 or whatever it is. Do you think that you've developed those filters or do you think you're just sort of like awash in stuff and you're trying to figure it out? I would like to think that I have and that our generation has, but the truth is, and this is no fault to Gen Z, we haven't. Like learning to fact check things in real time is incredibly hard. That's why every news outlet has fact checkers and, and Snopes exist. Like y- you can see something on TikTok that can be patently false. And that's true for any social media platform. I remember a couple of years ago, 
I saw this video on my on my for you page that had like two million likes, and it was like breaking news: Hillary Clinton caught eating a child's face. And it's like, no, Hillary Clinton was not caught eating a child's face. And because these platforms don't have enough accountability and and don't have fact checking systems in place, these things can spread rampantly. And and I think with things like Hillary Clinton eating a child's face, it's a little bit less risky because I think because everyone's just like that's ridiculous. most people are like but, yeah. that's not true. But 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 you are seeing things and where misinformation can spread more rapidly and through channels that that don't fact check like like no other medium before. And it also allows you to get news out there and, and challenge uh, legacy media and challenge established news. But it also can lead to. So, so does that mean, like, Avon, do you approach everything a little more cynically at the outset because you know that no one is sort of doing the fact checking for you? Or like, ha, ha, what's what's the mindset going into looking at all this information? Well, the first thing I think is important to say is I think that the biggest thing that Gen Z really has to do in this age of such concentrated media is also resist being desensitized. Mm -hmm. And I think because we're constantly being inundated with so much information, with so much breaking news, and with also a lot of tragedy, it's very easy to see that as sort of the norm. I think that we talk a lot about this when it comes to school shootings, for example, that our generation has just grown up as the school shooting generation. And so when we see a school shooting, we have to really resist the urge to just be like, oh, it happened again. Mm -hmm. So I think that's definitely part of it. But I would say in in terms of my impulse to fact check, I think I take things now also as I'm a little older with more of a grain of salt. But I think, for example, that's also because I'm surrounded by, in my own personal and professional life, I work in politics and I work in the policy world and I work in tech. So I already kind of have this baseline knowledge of, oh, it's very easy to spread mis or disinformation, whereas young people who aren't coming from that same background don't have that reminder kind of regularly. I don't think that we as a generation just have that setting to fact check. I think it takes a lot of intentionality and it takes also a lot of resistance to what a lot of Uh, media makers who are bad agents want us to do. They want us to engage. They want us to like and comment and share and spread that information and give them publicity. So it's hard. I I wouldn't say that it's easy because I think it's not the way that we've been necessarily raised to look at media. Um, I think there's also a sincere lack of even media literacy when it comes Mm -hmm. to traditional media. Yeah. How how do you guys... I don't think we have those skills. How do you like... Aiden, if, if I said the New York Times or ABC News, like what's the first thought? Is it just like dinosaur irrelevant or is it like, oh, something that is more legit than TikTok? Uh, the, the way that, that I view legacy media is, oh, this is what my parents read. Yeah. And, 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 and I, say that, I say that on a very broad scale because like, I, I mean, I, I do read, I, I, I try to engage with legacy media because it, it can offer certain things that, that TikTok cannot. And especially, I mean, very, there's very good reporting on TikTok, but so I, I try to just find good reporting uh, everywhere. But I think that, that the main thing that, that generationally is different is that like, sure, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of misinformation and disinformation on social media, but, but kids aren't going to start watching no offense to the fire to Chris Lick, but 
Yeah. But they're not going to start watching CNN. They're not going to start watching. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was MSNBC. a big uptick, for example, over the weekend when you had, you had the, the coup attempt in Russia with Prigozhin, where Twitter spaces, for example, which mm -hmm. is getting a lot more traffic. And I think that's because people rightfully probably felt like, well, you know what? I'm not going to get anything objective out of Fox News or MSNBC on, on either side. And I, so I, I think it, people may be flocking for exactly that reason. I, I honestly think it's less of you're not going to get something objective. It's more about the the perspectives, because I okay. think that that especially Gen Z is like w w we don't have the mindset that news anchors and journalists are the only people who who understand something. There are so many experts and you can become an expert by like just in, in your own home and by doing like a lot of work and doing a lot of reading and doing a lot of fact checking. And we want to hear those people's opinions. We also want to hear the opinions of, I know Vinman was tweeting all the time. I don't think he was on a lot of um, cable news shows, but he was tweeting like, because we're so used to just this access, we kind of want to consume everything. We want to consume like everything about something. And that's what we need to form an opinion to really understand something rather than just tuning into Rachel Maddow. So, so it, obviously that you guys must feel somewhat overwhelmed by the constant influx of information, probably just, just like all of us do in the sense that we are all now, I would argue our technology has exceeded our evolutionary capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we are awash in more information, which look is a world that we created. So that's something, but on the other hand, like, I don't know that we are evolved enough to know how to actually process all of it. So is that what leads to the trends of mental health issues that are especially predominant among teens and among Gen Z? Or is it more that there is sort of specific content that is far too accessible that, that, that creates problems? Adam, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, that is a big question. I think that the stimulation that we have as a generation is unprecedented. Um, the amount of screen time that we have as a generation is unprecedented. I think it's a combination of uh, negative and harmful content. And I think it's a combination also of the algorithms that are pushing that content strictly because they want the attention of the audience of the, the platform. But I also do think part of it is just the world that we're living mm -hmm. in is so chaotic and there's so much at stake. And I think when there's so much at stake in your environment and maybe you have stuff going on at home, you have stuff going on interpersonally, the environment doesn't help. There's really no place to escape. And something interesting that I recently read was there's a disappearance of third spaces among Gen Z. So in previous generations, there was your local coffee shop, there was your community center, there was the dance hall, there was the roller rink. Uh, you know, there were a lot more social spaces because when people were off work or out of school, they wanted somewhere to go. But our third space has become the internet. And right. while uh, community and communication, even digitally, is super valuable and can help people feel a real sense of belonging. And I know that I felt that. It cannot replace the human element of who we are. So I think that that is definitely a big part of the mental health crisis among Gen Z. And I'll also say, just to speak to Aiden's earlier point about just news and what we choose to consume, I think the other thing about Gen Z that ultimately frustrates us 
is we are very justice oriented. We like justice narratives. When we're reading the news, we're not just looking for the basic facts. Mm -hmm. We're looking for what's the real story here? What's the real arc? So on top of it, when you have a generation that's also focusing on finding the issue, it can churn out a lot of negativity. And ultimately, I think there's no one factor, but rather a combination of factors that just don't mix together well. So Aiden, from a, a policy standpoint, so one thing I like to do with this podcast is, is give the guests magic wands and just let them remake the world however they see fit. Um, if you were the king of, of the internet today, I'd like, okay, you can pass whatever regulations you want to mitigate some of the harms that you and Avalon have been talking about, what would you do? I, okay. It, it's hard. Okay, it's hard to be limited to just the the in the internet because you can I go think, more broadly. Sure. Yeah, because I because I think because yeah. I think to, to expand on what Avalon said, I think that like yes, there are absolutely algorithms and and harmful content is way too accessible and and pushed on young people on young people. But I also think that like if you're if you're Gen X or or older and you don't understand why young people are so depressed, like. Look around, look around your look around. The world is incredibly depressing right now. And of course, there are there are good things that are happening, but when you're engaging with 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 the greater ecosystem and you're looking around and you're watching the news, it like if if you if you don't get at some points hopeless and sad, just at, at various points, then you're not paying attention. So I think that like and, and I think this third party, the, the, the importance of this of this third uh, third party space or third space or whatever it is, um, is so important. And I think that that policymakers are are trying to even take away that space on the internet and take away that from life. Because especially like if you're a queer kid in the, in the South, then like spaces that you feel comfortable. It is incredibly hard to find those because your state is actively seeking to to silence and and oppress and invalidate you. Right. So I think that like when when we're dealing with things like the climate crisis, uh, lack of um, quality public education, lack of access uh, to healthcare, like it is, and the next best thing, like the, the easiest solution, is to turn to the internet. That's a problem. So I think to me. The internet is riddled with a lot of the same problems that that society is riddled with, but because it's kind of perceived as often better, you end up turning there and only finding more, more depressing things. So, what would you change? Would you say we we can't talk about depressing things on the internet, no. or we have to create? You would mandate kind of more third spaces, just in physical spaces and communities. How would you do? It? I mean, I think it's. It's like things like passing Medicare for all, passing uh, the Green New Deal, and then I, I think when we come to tech policy, um, uh, the the Kids Online Safety Act. I I'm generally a supporter of of COSA. I I'm th th they reformed a couple troubling parts, um, but but I'm a I'm a fan of that piece of legislation generally. I think that there's that there's a lot of legislation that um, amazing tech advocates like Avalon. Um, are are advocating for um, and and it's it is it is very exciting to see people get involved in an issue that like is so policy focused because I think people like a lot of young people who want to get involved in politics find politics like cool and it's like 
that's not that's not why you should want to get involved in politics. Like politics is about like survival and improving the improving the living conditions of of people around you and people around the country. Um, and so I think that that's what it gives me hope to see people working on sure. on this issue. All right, Avalon, the magic wand is yours. You're in charge. What I didn't use doing? it very well. <laughs> no, you didn't. I used it well. great. Yeah. So I really agree a lot with what Aiden was saying about focusing on improving the material conditions of people because I think when people are better, the way they use the internet is better. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of our solutions for the internet are somewhat feel a little bit topical, uh, but I, I agree that we should start with people. I think the thing that I'm most focused on right now is the rise of AI. Mm -hmm. I think that is going to shape and change a lot. I think it's going to change our digital world. And I've been talking to a lot of Gen Zers about what they think. And I would say, based on sort of the research that I did, I surveyed around 1,500 Gen Zers from all over the world. And 99% of them said that they knew what AI was. Right. 99%. This is young people from around 40 different countries. They know what AI is. Around four out of five of them said that they believe that, over four out of five of them said that they believe that policymakers need to act now on AI uh, for the safety of the internet, for the future of humanity. So what does acting now look like? So I think there's been a few very interesting frameworks that have been introduced. Mm -hmm. I believe it was last week Senator Schumer announced uh, his safe innovation framework for mm -hmm. AI policy, and I thought that that was sort of interesting. I'm, I'm interested to see where that goes. I think action now first of all, looks like getting the facts right. Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard, particularly on an issue that's evolving so rapidly, to actually sit back and think and talk to the experts and talk to the ethicists. Um, but I think action now means creating or uh, contributing to a justice-oriented framework that takes into account the holistic nature of the digital landscape. And I think, for example, to answer your initial question yeah. about, you know, the magic wand, um, I think that for me, I imagine a sort of political, social, economic framework that acknowledges the digital landscape as just that, as a landscape. You can't tackle issues of social media without looking at AI. You can't tackle issues of AI without looking at the impact of, for example, digital discrimination and the digital divide in this mm -hmm. country. And I look at AI as not an issue, but rather as an opportunity. And I think in order for us to make any progress, we have to look at the nature of the internet interconnectedness of this issue. So if I could talk to the top policymakers in the world right now, uh, that's all what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Section 230, you keeping it or are you getting rid of it? What do you want? Section 230. You know, that's a tough question. I think Section 230, you can't get rid of it without having something better to put in place. Mm -hmm. I think there's um, the idea that abolition of negative things is the solution. But in reality, if you get rid of Section 230, there are also a lot of consequences for innovators, for people that are the people that could provide opportunities for our digital landscape to look different. But also, it's very clear that Section 230 has been a defensive mechanism for some of the biggest human rights violations on the internet that we've seen. So you know what? I'd be all for getting rid of Section 230 if we had a comprehensive framework that was well thought out and was, I think, 
I don't want to say bipartisan, but rather something that everyone agreed was sensible that would sort of come in its place and actually make things better. Because I think there's a difference between getting rid of a bad thing and making mm -hmm. something better. Right. And, and just for the listeners, Section 230, I think most of our listeners already know what this is, but it is a law that provides legal immunity to social media platforms for the content posted by their users. So if I post something defamatory about Avalon, she can sue me, but she can't sue Twitter or she can't sue Instagram or whoever it is, which means the platforms, in, in my view, have no incentive to try to have responsible content on there because negative and toxic content generates more clicks and more eyeballs and more advertising revenue. And these are for-profit companies and that's what they're trying to achieve. Aiden, what do you think? I think you just like, I mean, this isn't really about 230 directly, but I think that like these companies are are often, as I understand, using AI for, for content moderation and that's not going well. Like that's, <laughs> it's not working because right. I know that like, I mean, and I'm sure Avalon, you've had similar experiences. I um, used to make a lot of TikToks about being Jewish. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm gay. Uh, and I would talk about that in my TikToks. And if I would say like, like if I'm, if I made a video call just mentioning being Jewish, then TikTok would, would typically flag the video and it would have to go undergo like a community guidelines, they would have to check because they saw they saw a Jew and they were like, oh, this could be offensive. But then, but then I, I would have people who would literally make death threats, like, and 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 make videos where they're threatening to kill me and calling me slurs. But because they like spell it, spell the slurs a little bit differently, TikTok had no problem so with that. They're getting right through the filters. I, and, so and not only yeah. are they getting through the filters, but I would literally report them to TikTok. TikTok would review them and say, this doesn't violate our community guidelines. Like, tech companies are doing a terrible, terrible job of content moderation and are not, like, they don't feel any duty to their users right. to, to so, make so, them safe. So, therefore, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a bit of a different view of Avalon in that I would get rid of Section 230 even without a replacement mechanism solely because I just don't trust the platforms to ever get it right because it's not in their economic interest to do so. I'd rather put it in the hands of the courts and the courts and juries are going to have lots of different views, but over a period of time, jurisprudence will emerge to say, okay, these are the things that get you in legal trouble. These are the things that don't. And once the companies don't want to get in legal trouble because then they lose more money than they make, they start adhering to those guidelines. Um, so, you guys are both sort of very engaged in trying to kind of get people in your generation aware of issues and to act on it. What works in communicating with, with people your age and what doesn't? About everyone. I'm, it's interesting thinking about this question because I've had a lot of different experiences to, to gain my perspective. First, as a community organizer, kind mm -hmm. of my first real foray into politics was working on the local and the national teams at March for Our Lives and mm -hmm. um, running their social media for a period of time um, with an amazing team. And so I kind of got to see what got those kids engaged and what got people engaged in our mission. And I've, you know, worked on social media for a few other nonprofits. And um, I've also just been doing a lot of political organizing. And now I do content creation uh, my platform is focusing on um, expanding access to early career education, specifically for young women around the world. And mm -hmm. I have around 250,000, 95% of which are young women in my audience. Um, 
And what I found that resonates with us the most is authenticity. Mm -hmm. When I was working social media from a political lens, people could sniff out gimmicks, Mm -hmm. uh, could sniff out us sort of pandering in any way, not to say we were pandering, but they could sort of sniff out when you were operating as a marketer Mm -hmm. and an advertiser rather than as a person. And I I think that that has its benefits and its drawbacks because you don't always want to be a person on the internet. You know, sometimes you just want to be advertising. Sometimes you just want to be finding ways to get people's attention. But I think Gen Z also really values truth-telling. Gen Z values consistency. Gen Z values real community and real partnership. Um, We're a generation who I think sniff out fraudulent stuff pretty quick. Um, When someone isn't being authentic to a particular mission, when someone is presenting as something they're not, um, or when an issue is talked about in a way that isn't holistic, that doesn't take into account the perspectives of every sort of stakeholder that, you know, is related to this issue. I think Gen Z not only feels confused and disengaged, but actually frustrated Mm -hmm. because we have a very particular version of the internet and of engagement that is, like I said earlier, kind of, I would say, justice oriented. So regardless of what it is that we're advertising, I'd also say that Gen Z doesn't like people or organizations or companies appearing as shallow. Yeah. And we will definitely, I mean, I have seen uh, incredible marketing strategies from some of the biggest companies in the world that I think engage Gen Z in a really valuable way. And then I've seen companies get ripped apart on social media for how they're trying to cater to Gen Z. So I think, you know. Anything come to mind as sort of the best or worst that you've seen? Um, I think one example that I think of right off the bat is Duolingo yeah, social I was media. Just about to say Duolingo. What, what do you like about it or not? Like so Duolingo social media is just incredible. Um, they uh, basically the young woman who was sort of tasked with this strategy, uh, with the strategy, she came up with the idea, I believe, for this Duolingo owl, who is essentially this character, like a real person would dress up mascot style in this character. And they would post videos. I think they gained most of their prominence on TikTok. Um, But hopping onto trends, hopping onto issues that Gen Z cared about, participating and using the social currency of Gen Z to engage their audience instead of acting like it was silly. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure there was. As someone who's worked in the the nonprofits, like just the digital approval space, I can almost guarantee there was not. Like the videos they were posting didn't have to go through 10 rounds of approvals. Right. Um, I think uh, I, I totally agree. Authenticity works, and like leaning into leaning into kind of absurdism and just things that that legacy media wouldn't do. I think that like uh, or campaigns wouldn't do or companies wouldn't do. I think that I so okay. This is a bit of an odd an odd story, but I was I was working on Senator Ed Markey's campaign mm-hmm. um, a couple years ago, and. Uh, one of the most, and so I, I have my own TikTok, TikTok presence and one of the most successful, um, campaign related activities I did was we had this thing where, where, where you were basically supposed to, to have your friends, um, fill out this, this link to pledge to be a supporter of Senator Markey and like they would get emails and everything about him. And I made a TikTok 
um, talking about this this shirt, this joke shirt I made that was um, to give a, okay a, a speck of context. I Keisha Lance Bottoms was the mayor of Atlanta, of Atlanta yeah. mm-hmm. and she was a vice presidential finalist uh, for for Biden. Mm-hmm. I made these shirts with her campaign logo that said Bottoms for Biden. I'm not going to further explain the joke, <laughs> but they said Bottoms for Biden, and I made a TikTok saying. If like a thousand people sign up on this page about Ed Markey, and I explained briefly who Ed Markey was and what he stood for, then I will make a video wearing this shirt and film my family's reactions. And that got 2,500 people to sign up and learn a lot more about Ed Markey and got a bunch of people to phone banks and text banks and to text their friends about Markey. And so these are things that like, if I had gone to the campaign and been like, hey, this is the TikTok I want to make, they would be like, (laughs) <laughs> what are you what what are you talking about? What is this? Right. But but it ended up being incredibly successful because I remember looking at like they, they posted at one point like the 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 numbers of, of how much each how many people that had each fellow had enlisted. Like the number two was about like I think a hundred and I was at twenty five hundred. Like like d- digital digital tools can can get people involved in such effective way. So what was okay, so you got twenty five you got twenty five times more mm-hmm. than the next person. Was it that they so badly wanted to see you wearing this T-shirt and getting your parents' reaction to it? Like, what was the motivating because, factor? Because it's it's like things are so bad in general. Things are so bad, and like this is like a fun little, like a funny little absurd way where you can like get you can see something funny and also like put your name down to support. The progressive movement and like, get involved. Yeah, like this. There's often this like very doom and gloom mentality of, that people think Gen Z has, and like most Gen Z like is aware of the terrifying circumstances in which we are living. But we know that like we can make a difference, and there are no wrong ways. There's no playbook. To, to social media about about how it can be used effectively. So, and so we're writing. So it. let's take it one more step further. What if then those people on election day could have voted for Markey from their phone? Like, what do you think you we're could do with voting. that? Yeah, here we are. I mean, I the, think Markey would have Markey would have would have won by even more, but he did win by a lot over Kennedy. So, um, so I mean, there's and if this is true of not just your generation, but every generation, which is. You know, even people who say that they are politically engaged, that they're regular voters, what they really mean is they vote in the presidential election, maybe occasionally they'll vote in a big federal election. They don't know who their state rep is, right? And they don't know who their city council member is. And like most, it, having worked in government for a lot of my career, most of the actual governing that happens in the world is on the municipal and state level. It's really yeah. not in Congress. So what does it take to get Gen Z actually voting in city council primaries and state rep primaries? Um, is it giving them more technological tools? Is it more information? What what, what would do it? Adam, go ahead. Well, I would say the first thing that I was thinking of as you were talking about, you know, mobile voting and what would get us more engaged is my journey to come and vote over the last two cycles of Mm -hmm. voting. So I couldn't 
figure out. And I was really confused. This is, I'm speaking as someone who- You're pretty smart. Let's, just, I, let's just establish <laughs> that. I've talked to you enough to know I, you're, you're genuinely pretty smart. Yeah, thank you. And, <laughs> so. you know, I'm also speaking as someone who worked a lot in voting engagement and registered mm -hmm. to vote. So this is a little bit of an embarrassing, you know, thing to admit. But I was, the the website and the process of getting my absentee ballot when I was at college and I wanted to vote, mm -hmm. not only was it confusing, but also, like, I had a lot of friends who didn't even get their ballots. Yeah. Like, yeah. it was a really crazy process. Yeah. And uh, that, that's why vote by mail sort of isn't the I, solution. I, I, I had a friend, I, I go to school up in Boston. I had a friend who requested her mail-in ballot from, from Florida in, in September and it arrived in April. <laughs> right. Sorry, so I then it's like, what's, it's, no, it's what's, so then yeah. it's like, what's the point, you know? And I feel like I'm someone who made an effort to vote. And so I actually ended up going home. I ended up traveling mm -hmm. home voting and then traveling back to school because it was just i i and what what election was that for i did that for the previous congressional i believe it was the previous uh, gubernatorial election in new york state okay. and i also did that in the last presidential election gotcha. would you have done that for a state senate primary i mean if I really cared about it and I really right. knew a lot about it, I feel like voting is incredibly important and I will vote anytime that I can. But also just being realistic, Gen Zers are also at an age where we're in school and right. a lot of us are all over the country. And I, I go to school in New York City, so, and I'm from Long Island. So it's very, you know, it's easier. It's still a hassle, but it's easier for me to travel. But for example, for my friends that are from California and our school in New York, they're not, they're not going to, if they can't figure out the, the system and or they can't do it on time also because there's these deadlines that they know nothing yeah. about, they're certainly not going to go back to California to vote for, you know, a state Senate primary. So I think that it's, if we had access to more tools that made it easier for us to vote, mm -hmm. I think we would vote more, especially if those tools were native to us. Um, but at the same time, I think there also needs to be more substantial education starting very early. I'm a very um, serious advocate for civic education mm -hmm. in the K through 12 school. I mm -hmm. think that it's incredibly important. I've seen its impact firsthand and how it transforms an individual's ability to participate what, what in their work community. Because clearly you, it were. So what was it? I mean, I think for me, it was, I think I'm a little bit of a different case because my parents or my mother specifically is very politically active. Mm -hmm. um, she was very involved. My first ever experience in politics was I was 12 years old and she was in leadership for the local chapter of NOW and the National Organization mm -hmm. for Women in Long Island. And she would bring me with her to her NOW meetings when I was 12 years old. And that definitely for me cemented a deep, not only interest, but also commitment to kind of the political purpose of you know, being an American citizen. Uh, but I think for, for example, my friends that went to the local public schools where there was a teacher that created a civic education program um, in, in the Huntington School District, I recognize that for them, what worked was having someone not only believe that civic education is important, that they deserve and should know about it, but also someone that believed in them and believed that their voices were valuable mm -hmm. in the civic landscape. And I think that ultimately I've seen in Gen Z is we have to be told that 
we are valuable members of society and that we can contribute mm-hmm. because I think too often we're demeaned. I mean, I think too often there's sort of this rhetoric of, oh, Gen Zers are TikTok addicted. Generation. Yeah, they're addicted to TikTok. You know, they don't know anything. They Screen don't have to work agents. hard. Yeah, exactly. And so I think when you approach any group of people with that sort of attitude, they're not going to be very happy and they're not going to get it. They're not going to want to engage in your campaign. So I think also it's also up to candidates and campaign teams if they want Gen Z to vote in their campaigns to actually also speak, not only speak to the issues that Gen Z cares about, but do their best to involve them in their campaigns. 100%. Right. 100%. Yes. Yeah, so what, what's your take on it in terms of like, how do we translate uh, kind of the, in, there's clearly a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. Obviously you guys are sort of political junkies and Whatever generation you grew up in, whatever technology, you probably still would have been political junkies, is my guess, just like I was when I was your age or even younger. Um, but overall, so yeah, so what are the tools that you think get us from people wanting things to change to actually being able to force change? I think there, I think there are two things. So the first thing is more personal. So I don't vote. In I don't vote for a state senate. I don't, I don't vote for a state rep. I don't vote for a governor. A and that's because I'm right? from Washington, yeah, D.C. Give, give yeah. D.C. statehood. <laughs> I agree. Give us more to vote <laughs> on. Um, so I do want to do, yeah, that brief plug for yeah, D.C. statehood and the fact that we have yeah. a higher population than Wyoming and Vermont. But also, more broadly speaking, I think that, like, because civics education isn't, isn't where it needs to be, Gen Z doesn't understand what municipal governance or even your state governance actually does because i think that if that if young people understood that like the reason why like in, like if you're in florida if you're in tennessee if you're in texas the reason why why your rights are under attack are because of your state representative who who you can vote for who you can like actually affect mm-hmm. affect what's happening because i think that 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 because there's not this education we kind of just like we we feel things happening, but not we, we don't understand where they're coming from necessarily. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah. that that not only making it easier to vote, but also making it clear why why you should vote, um, what 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 it can affect, um, who who speaks for you, who who isn't who is someone who doesn't speak for your values, um, and also uh, just making it. I was say, yeah, making it easier because because like I'm from Washington D.C. For me, like voting was as simple as like I I got my ID and it and it registered me to vote and then they sent me a mail-in ballot and that was very easy. For, for my friend in Texas, she spent two years trying to register to vote and get her ballot because it is so hard to register to vote there. Like we voting needs to be easier, registering to vote needs to be easier, all of it needs to be easier. Mm-hmm. All right. If if for the old people listening to this podcast. If they could understand one thing about your generation, what is that one thing? That we want to work with you. 100%. Like, I think that there's a misconception that we have no desire to be in rooms with experts who are older than us. When I would say those experiences that I've had where I've had to collaborate across generations, and I'm a very serious proponent of intergenerational collaboration, those have truly been my most meaningful experiences. So I think that if older generations understood that we want to be there, we want to be in the rooms where it happened, and 
we also want to be valuable contributors to those rooms. We just don't, we don't want, just want to sit there and mm -hmm. yell at you and tell you how bad you are. We really want to share our perspective. And we also really think that you have a lot of value and a lot to teach us. And we want to be mentored because we are so change oriented. We want to have as many tools as possible. So I think just sort of getting rid of maybe this uh, strange stereotype that we hate older generations. We don't. And we know we could have, we have a lot to learn and we know there's a lot more we could do hand in hand rather than in opposition to each other. And you agree? You're nodding like yeah. enthusiastically. No, no, I, I totally agree. The one thing I would say to, to, to older generations is that there is no one thing. And so talk to us because I think people are scared. Like I've met so many like Gen Z experts who are like who are like uh, Gen X or millennials or older, um, who are talking about uh, Gen Z as if we're this like mythological creature, and and it's clear <laughs> they don't engage with Gen Z. So like actually talk to young people about about what they care about as an equal, not as a like yes. as a parent or a coach or, or or whatever. Like don't we don't bite. Don't be afraid to talk to us. Like, like we, we want to work with you. These guys are both very nice. I can yeah, <laughs> we, we don't bite. All right. I can't How do people rest. follow each of you and get involved in what you're working on? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can mm -hmm. find me on LinkedIn, Avalon LinkedIn. Fenster. Uh, I post a lot about AI. I post a lot about Gen Z. I post about tech policy. I'm super active on LinkedIn. Maybe I'm a little different than other <laughs> members of my generation in that way, but you can find me there. Uh, and if you're interested in some of the work that I'm doing to expand kind of global early career access to young women, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok as Internship Girl. Uh, so I post also there a lot about how to use AI and how to use digital tools to empower you in your early career. So yeah, find me there and would love to connect with anyone who listens to this fabulous podcast. Cool. Aiden? Uh, I'm at Aiden Cohn Murphy on most platforms. I'm at Aiden Please Stop Talking on, on TikTok. <laughs> uh, and also Gen Z for Change is the organization I founded. Uh, check us out. We, I think we do some pretty cool stuff. Um, and also on LinkedIn, but I'm not very good at it. So Avalon, I'm gonna gonna <laughs> pick your brain about this right after this fantastic podcast. We're, we're learning already. All right, guys, thank you both so much for joining. Thank you so much, for, so having much us. for having us.